This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to have you here in the room or online, Uh, and it's very encouraging to get a round of applause up before I've even said anything, so thank you for the vote of confidence in everything that's about to be shared. Um, Well, it is only my second normal AM service, um, so my only second time through the Book of Acts, but it is actually our final sermon in our Acts series that we've been tracking together through uh, as a church family. And we've been jumping around a little bit between the chapters and the passages. But if you had just opened up in Acts chapter 1 and read through to where we're going to pick up today in Acts chapter 12, I'm willing to bet your hearts would be so encouraged, right? Full of hope, full of faith, full of confidence that Jesus is building his church Uh, We've tracked the story of the early church so far up until Acts chapter 12. We've seen the pouring out of the the Holy Spirit. We've seen mass repentance and baptism. We've heard about the life of the early church, their love for each other, their deep commitment to worshipping together and to reaching out with the life-saving message of Jesus. Man, we've seen people's lives be transformed as they've come to place their faith and trust in Jesus in response to the preaching of the word and in response to some amazing miracles. And last week, we even looked at the fact that the gospel is now spreading across racial barriers. Jesus is building his church. And you know what? Jesus is still building his church today, isn't he? And that's not to say, of course, that everything's always smooth sailing for us today or for the early church back then. There are significant cultural and political, circumstantial, relational and spiritual forces that would seek to limit or even halt the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. And yet in the words of Luke in our passage this morning, but, but, even though, despite this, the word of God continues to spread and flourish, flourishing in the hearts and lives of all that it takes root in. Jesus is building his church. So hopefully you're getting a sense that this morning I want us to leave full of hope and full of confidence, excited by, full of courage that Jesus is building his church and wanting to participate in that movement that Jesus is building. So if you have your Bibles, please do open them up to Acts chapter 12, and we're just going to track verse by verse through this today, um, which is fun. I've got a little bit low tech on the reading, so on the slide, so you'll hopefully enjoy my delightful handwriting scribe in a second. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it was about this time, about this time if you're taking notes. Uh, Now Luke is an incredibly accurate ancient historian. And so for him to use the phrase, it was about this time, is deliberately vague. And so we know that Acts chapter 12, he's not placing it here in the story in strictly chronological order. But what he's actually trying to do about this time is he's tying it thematically to what's just been recorded. So about the time that the gospel is breaking forth and crossing racial barriers, and about the time that a a famine, a real decent famine is threatening the church in Jerusalem, about that time, the church in Jerusalem is coming under increasingly targeted persecution. The spread of the gospel and the growth of the church does not occur in a vacuum. 
does it. And so it's in this context, verse 1 again, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. Now, I'm looking forward uh, to our kids leading the service in a fortnight as we start to shift our minds to Christmas. But this is not the Herod that we read about in the Christmas story, okay? This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. Uh, Now, his granddad was an absolutely nasty piece of work, if you've read the history about him killing family members to secure his throne, and, and we all remember that edict that he gave around the birth of Jesus as well. And it seems his grandson isn't much better. Now, King Herod Agrippa I has a substantial power hold on this part of the world. Uh, The Roman Emperor Gaius um, in AD 37 gifted to him the region of Palestine, and Emperor Claudius in AD 41 added Judea and Samaria to his sort of rule and, and reign. So his kingdom was as extensive as his granddaddy's. And so the question then becomes, well, well, why? Why would this guy with so much power and scope and might, go after this little fledgling, fledgling religious movement in Jerusalem whose teaching is not particularly aggressive. They don't have political aspirations. They don't have a standing army. In fact, some of their teaching specifically says to respect the authorities that are over you. Why would he go after them? Well, we see the answer in verse 3. That when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Agrippa wants his position to be strong and secure. And so he seeks to get the biggest part of the population on his side, the Jews, in that region. Which means that what we have here is actually the first politically motivated persecution of the church. Can you imagine that for a second? If you were a first century believer in Jerusalem, that is seriously scary stuff. Herod has the political power, he has the military might, he has the backing of Rome at his disposal. He's a formidable opponent. And what's more, he's going straight after the leaders of the church. Like, this guy is not mucking about. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Peter, James, and John, they're they're the three key disciples you read about all throughout the gospel accounts key apostles, key figures in the life of the church. James was one of the three living witnesses to Jesus' transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. He becomes the first of the apostles to lose their life for following Jesus. Can you imagine the shockwaves that would have sent through the early church? And can you imagine the effect that that has on Peter, who is probably sitting in the same jail cell that James was held in, awaiting the same fate. You've seen it on screen, you might be familiar with the story. Spoiler alert, uh, Peter is spared. Sorry, there goes the suspense for for today's message. but I actually just wanted to let, name that up front because it's, it's so, it would be so lovely to be able to preach Acts chapter 12. Like there's nothing bad that ever happens to God's servants. And isn't it amazing that God will take care of you no matter what? Well, verse 2 doesn't allow that. I do not know why God would rescue Peter, but not James. I don't know why he answers some of our prayers for healings and, and not others. But I do know that in Hebrews chapter 11, this great hall of faith, as we lift up those heroes of our faith, 
It records in verse 34 that there were those who escaped the edge of the sword, like Peter, mentioned right alongside verse 37, those who were killed by the sword, like James. And yet, in verse 39, all of these were commended for their faith. It seems sometimes the answers to those questions are for God and God alone to know. I know I'm supposed to be quick because we've got a focus meeting coming up, but Revelation 20, this, this really s- struck me. So Peter, James, and John, the inner three disciples, yeah? James loses his life. Later on, John will be exiled to the island of Patmos, and God will give him a vision that becomes our book of Revelation in the Scriptures. And Acts chapter 20, as part of that vision that God gives him, he records this vision in which those who were beheaded, those who were killed by the sword, were raised back to life to reign and to rule with Jesus forever. And I can't help but think that in the kindness and lovingness of our Father, that in the vision that he gives to John, he sees his brother James in that vision being raised to life to rule with Jesus forever. Possibly a stretch, but I can't help but think just maybe that's what happened. So Luke continues. This happened. These events happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And after arresting him and putting him in prison, um, Herod handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, intending to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day celebration uh, that began the day after Passover every spring. It was one of those Jewish festivals that required all of the Jewish guys to come together and be in attendance at Jerusalem. In other words, this is the perfect time to maximise the impact of a political move designed to impress Jews. But if you're going to do that, you also need to respect their customs, which include no trials uh, and, and no, nobody put to death during, uh, during that festival. So he's waiting right until uh, it's finished to do this. Now, I don't know if Herod is aware of Peter's history or, or not, but what is clear is that he is taking absolutely no chances in guarding his prisoner. Uh, I don't know if you know this, um, but Peter sort of has the spiritual gift of escaping prison. <laughs> if you've, I, don't, I don't know um, if we need that this, today, in this day and age, but I tell you what, if you did need it, geez, you'd want that spiritual gift, wouldn't you? Um, Peter, in, in throughout Acts, has actually escaped prison twice uh, already, um, but those were sort of temple guards and kind of local, local prison sort of stuff. This is, this is a Roman prison with centurions um, guarding them. And he's not taking any chance at all. 16 on this kind of six-hour rotation, two chained by his side, two um, by the the gate, um, his his cell, on top of uh, the regular guards that would guard him. And so, so Luke just records, so Peter was kept in prison, and he's surely awaiting certain death, just like James. This is an impossible situation. Herod has the power, the means, the motivation, uh, the recent history of killing the church's key leaders, and he has got Peter absolutely locked down, completely secure. But Luke, praise God, records this. So Peter was kept in prison, but, but, here Luke introduces us to the key story-changing, situation-changing detail, the church we're praying. It's not just Peter versus Herod. 
It's not just the little fledgling church in Jerusalem versus the power and the might of Rome, but God himself is in the midst of this story. The church was praying. And doesn't that make all the difference, knowing that God is in the midst of this story? The growth of the church does not occur in a vacuum. Have you ever met those people that just seem to be full of hope and full of joy no matter their circumstance or situation in life? Never. Wow, we should preach on joy and hope and having maybe a glass half full attitude towards life. And you've never met those people? I met Matt before. He's full of joy. What a delight, right? Yeah, absolutely. We know that there are some people that just wherever they go, they seem to exude hope. They seem to exude joy. No matter what's going on in their personal life, they seem to bring a word of encouragement, and that's just their ministry of encouraging other people. Uh, We had this uh, missionary couple that were sent out from Parramatta a couple of years ago, and and this was them to a T. They'd come back from the mission field, and we felt like we were being ministered to in gifts of encouragement to our church when we were the ones that were supposed to be supporting and encouraging and uplifting them. Uh, But they served God in Taiwan, in the city of Taipei, and in the regional kind of centres, the rural centres around there. And so they'd come back, and they'd come back, and they'd tell us the stories of the spiritual environment in which they ministered. And it was eye-opening, I have to say. The growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, does not occur in a vacuum. And they'd tell us about the festivals that happened in these rural villages where they would have to put on these giant feasts, spend all this money, cook all this food, present it all just right in order to appease the spirits of their ancestors. And as they share, they talk about the deep and very real fear that gripped the people they were trying to share Jesus with because of these ancestral spirits. That every house they walked into had little shrines and, and little idols. And it was so obvious and so clear, so in your face, that there was a a spiritual environment in which they ministered. And so every time they came back and they shared with us publicly like this when the church gathered on Sundays or in small groups or or even one-on-one as they just caught up with our, our missions team, every time they would call us to partner with them in what, do you reckon? In prayer. They recognized the significant spiritual environment that they ministered in. And they called us to partner with them in prayer, to intercede for them, and to intercede for the work of spreading the good news of Jesus to homes and families and lives that desperately needed to hear it. And I wonder if for us in secular Australia, if sometimes it's because it's not so in our face, and because it's not so obvious that we can be a little blind, maybe, a little unaware, maybe take a little bit for granted, not treat too seriously the spiritual environment in which we seek to share Jesus. As we long to share Jesus with our neighbours in our schools, to share testimonies of his goodness, those desires don't occur in a vacuum. We recognise the spiritual landscape that we are placed among. And after all, what do we have if we do not have God on our side? John Stott, in his commentary on on Acts, he he comments this about Peter's situation. What could the little community of Jesus, in its powerlessness, do against the armed might 
of Rome. What could the little community of Jesus in its powerlessness do against the armed might of Rome? Nothing. There was nothing that they, <clears throat> that they could do except the one thing that they could, which just so happens to be the most powerful situation changer. They could pray. And I love that this isn't just a token line that Luke records for us. They didn't just say, oh, we'll, we'll pray for you, Peter. They didn't just pop that on a prayer chain email, but the church was actually praying, gathered together late into the night when Peter rocks up, praying, actively seeking, knocking, pleading with God to intervene in the life of Peter. And the thing that really strikes me about this passage is not just the fact that they were praying, but it was how Luke describes the way that they were praying. Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts, as you know, and he uses deliberately, I think, the exact same word here in Acts chapter 12 to describe the way that the church prays as he does in Luke 22:44 to describe the way that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take a moment. <laughs> the same way that Jesus was praying for the, to the Father hours before his betrayal and arrest and his crucifixion is the same way that the church is praying in Acts chapter 12. With the same urgency, with the same desperation, with the same sense of faith and confidence, with the same relational intimacy with the Father, they are earnestly praying the same way that Jesus himself prays to the Father on his last night. Who prays like that today? I guess the question is, where are the people of prayer? Where are the people of prayer who stay up late, who, chunk, who carve chunks of time out of their day to ask and seek and knock, to wrestle with God in prayer, that his kingdom would come in our world as it is in heaven, who are pleading and praying that God would open the eyes of the spiritually blind in our world so that they might see the beauty of Jesus, who are praying protection and blessing and fruit from those who are on the front lines sharing Jesus in our neighbourhoods and in our schools, in our workplaces, the same way that Jesus was praying in Gethsemane. It's the same way that the church was praying in Acts. You know, I have to say, I, I really resonate with Stott's comment. What could the little community of Jesus in its powerlessness do against the giants in the way. The massive cultural, political forces that seem to come against the spread of the gospel. And there are times, I must admit, and maybe you have these times too, where you just feel the weight of that in our day and age. I know the stats. I see the census figures, that declining religious affiliation, the dramatic shift not just to other spiritualities, but to the nuns, those who have no concept or any sort of identification with any vaguely spiritual things. And a couple of years ago, this was actually really getting to me as I saw these, these public figures that I'd looked up to as a Christian growing up, key worship leaders, people who had written Christian books to young Christian guys, publicly denounce and decry their faith, and on the way out, pick up a whole bunch of stones and throw them back at the church. It started making me feel like we're losing the war. <laughs> Have you ever felt that? 
And it seemed like every time I turned on my television, Christians were the laughing joke um, of every uh, yeah, talk show uh, online. And they'd find the most crazy, out there, bad example of a Christian to get on the straw man just to pull them down and say, ha, see, these Christians don't know what they're talking about. And at times, because I am a little bit more of a glass, half-empty kind of guy, I must admit, that would suck the joy and the hope and the confidence out of me. And I felt, and uh, it took a while, I feel a, a weightiness and a burden for the future of the church and the spread of the gospel in Australia. But at the same time as I felt that, I can't help but also be a dreamer and imagine what if. What if? What if Luke continued to chronicle the life of the church and the spread of the gospel through the centuries and through the millennia and across the years? And what if in 20 years' time, a preacher got up in a church in the United Kingdom and said, could you turn, please, with me to Acts chapter 10,436, 10, the church in Australia? <laughs> and what if in that account, as Luke writes, that he recorded that there was an enormous swing away from spirituality, that young adults were leaving the church and abandoning their faith in droves, but the church at Narara Valley Baptist Church were praying. What if he went on to record that Bob and Jane, who'd known Jesus all their lives, and were having such a struggle in their marriage and finding it so hard for Jesus to be in the centre of it, but their home group were praying? What about Michael, a teenage boy, was, was struggling to find purpose and meaning and struggling to connect the faith that he'd grown up with in real life, but his parents were praying? The same way that Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane was the same way that the church was praying in Acts chapter 12. And it's the same way that we are invited to pray today to be the game-changing, situation-changing detail in the story, the church were praying. Okay, so we've got Peter in prison. We should keep going, shouldn't we? There's a countdown timer up there. It's very helpful, <laughs> but very nerve-wracking as well. I feel like I'm in a race. Who's going to win? We'll find out. Um, so we've got Peter in um, prison, uh, facing certain what certainly seems to be certain martyrdom, and he can't do anything about his uh, situation. Uh, and, and I love this. One cheeky commentator just writes about this. Let me find the thing. Um, that this is not the first time we found Peter asleep when he should have been praying. That is a sick burn if you, know the, if you know the story in Luke 22. Right? If it is me, if I am the one in that prison cell, I assure you there is no sleeping that is going on. Anyone with me on that one? Right? You're nervous, you're worrying, you're filled with fear. I don't want to die tomorrow uh, because Herod wants it to win some political points. Right? I'm up praying, uh, and even once I've prayed my prayers and I feel like I can't pray anymore, this heart in here is going so fast. There is no way that I can shut my eyes and go to sleep. Plus, I've got two burly Roman centurions tied to me, right? 
oh, I feel very vulnerable and I want, want to stay awake. But we find Peter sleeping. And one of the things that I love about this is I think Peter sleeping here is the same as Paul singing worship songs a few chapters um, later. It is the peaceful sleep of a man whose conscience is clear before God. And it is a place of deep trust in his God. And it's not necessarily trust that God will rescue him, because we see that Peter is just as surprised as everybody else (laughs) that this story ends the way it does. It's the trust that whatever the outcome, God is good. And that by his life or his death, God will be glorified and honoured. And that trust is, is not misplaced. God's hand is upon him. God is at work in the midst of impossible circumstances. I mean, you look at that story, at what point does Peter contribute anything to his own rescue? Nothing. He doesn't manage to pick the locks of his chains. He doesn't manage to choke out a prison guard. He, doesn't, he hasn't watched all those movies about how to, like, you know, he doesn't have done the prison break thing and find all the different things and dug a hole through the wall. I mean, Luke records that Peter basically doesn't have a clue that he's being rescued until it's all over. <laughs> right? It's almost comical how much the angel of the Lord has to lead him step by step to freedom. Okay, let's do a bright light. No, no, Peter, no, this means you need to wake up now. You're going to put some clothes on? No, all of the clothes, Peter. We need all of the clothes on. All right, now follow me. That means you follow me through this door. That means you follow me down this corridor. Uh, it's ridiculous, right? But how often is that our testimony? I'll be in a situation, I can't see how I'm going to get through it. I've got no idea how God could be glorified in it or my faith could be strengthened for me to become more like Christ. And yet, step by step, as we just say yes to where God leads, he leads us according to his good and perfect plans in our life. Anyone ever had that experience? Praise God. Praise God that you have. And it's easy to kind of have a go at Peter here and and see him as a bit dull and a bit slow (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. But I actually think this is a beautiful picture of what trust looks like. Where he should have been fearful, he has peace. When God speaks, he listens. When God instructs through the angel, he obeys. When God leads, he follows even though he doesn't have the full picture, but he can take the next step. And when he looks back, he recognises the hand of God in his rescue. And when he retells the story, he gives all the glory and all the credit to God. You know, I think in the spiritual landscape in which we live and minister, it is so important to tell the stories to tell the stories of how we've trusted God and how he's proved himself trustworthy, to tell the stories of how we've seen God at work, of where we've seen him moving, of how he's answered our prayers, because this has a strengthening impact on the faith of one another. It causes faith to well up within us and for us to lay hold of that hope and that joy and that confidence that the word of God will spread and the church will continue to grow because Jesus is the one who is building his church. So I reckon I've got a quick story in me before we finish um, because I want to, to lay this in, in, real, in real life. Um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, my sister did not know Jesus. 
had never at any point uh, in her life made a profession of faith. Uh, there are times where maybe she started being open, but, but on the whole, it, it was a done deal. It was a closed conversation. And I really felt that as her, as her older brother, that that, was, that kind of conversation was not welcome uh, in our home. To put it in the sort of metaphor of here, I mean, she was under lock and key. She was in that prison cell. It was an impossible situation. Herod, the secular age, had definitely got their grips on her. But my parents never stopped praying for her. And through a bunch of circumstances that we would not have chosen, that we did not expect, and we wouldn't ask that anybody else go through, she reached out in her need for God and experienced him and encountered him and collected the stories and the testimonies of his goodness and his power and his protection and his presence with her. And I can't tell you how emotional I was when I jumped up in my last church because we used to do some times of open mic and just give testimony to the fact that my sister, who I thought would never be open to the things of the kingdom, let alone come to place her faith and trust in Jesus, had done just that. And this sister, who I thought, who I'd written off, who I thought, well, that, that was it, she's, you know, she's a grown woman, she's a mum of kids, like, that's, that's done deal, now invites me to prayer meetings. Isn't that cool? Jesus is building his church. And the gospel continues to spread in Acts chapter 12, in Acts chapter 20, in the first century, in the fifth century, in the 2022, whatever century we're up to now. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff there that happens if you want to know. Uh, I'm just going to fast forward this because that clock is flying. But Luke ends his account of this story this way. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. It's the third time in the book of Acts that Luke just does a step back, a zoom out, and makes this comment. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. You know, I think it is so easy to get caught up in the stats that bring us to a place of defeat, discouragement, maybe deflate us, rob us of our joy and our hope. And my heart and my hope this morning is that you leave full of hope and joy and confidence and faith and the knowledge that Jesus is building his church and that the word of God continues to spread. And where it spreads, it flourishes in the hearts and lives of all who take it up. Because we have the stories, don't we, as a church right here of what God is doing. Lewis sharing last, night, last week as part of his sermon, people putting up their hands to want to know more of Jesus in their lives. I've stepped into an office where there are photos of people being baptised, young people who are getting up to declare their faith and their trust and their allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Saviour and saying, I'm in, all in, for all the days of my life. Right now, there are teams of people around the world who are committing themselves full-time to translating the Bible into languages that have not yet been translated into so that people around the world can have this in their own native tongue so that they can come to know and experience what we know and experience, the word of God spreading and flourishing 
in our lives. And ministry upon ministry in the life of our church, the stories that we all cover, the all that we carry testify to this, doesn't it? So I'd love to pray for us all this morning. Invite the worship team up as well as we do. I don't know how you came to church this morning. (laughs) I don't know if you came full of hope and joy or if there were some things that were weighing really heavy on your heart about the state of the church, this church or or the big C church in Australia or globally what is happening around the world. But I want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray for myself that we would lift our eyes to the one who is building his church. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this magnificent story in our history as a people, the rescue of Peter. And God, we rejoice in it not just because somebody got saved from certain death only to die later, but we rejoice in the testimony that it gives of a God who is with us, a God who sees and a God who cares and a God who is involved intimately in the life of his people and the life of his church. For us this morning, Lord, I pray where we've had maybe that feeling of defeat or we're just deflated or maybe we're just discouraged, it's kind of crept in and we feel the weight and we feel the burden of the lostness of our world and the cultural and the political and the the spiritual forces that seem to want to come against the spread of the gospel. I pray that you would shake that off us in the name of Jesus. That in its place, Lord, that our eyes would raise to you to gaze on the one who has brought life where there is death, healing where there is brokenness, and help us trust afresh in what you can do, in what you are doing. Lord, we want to be a church that prays like this church that we read of for the sake of our city and our family. Would you be pleased, Lord, I pray, to have the word of God go out from this place, spread and take root in people's lives and people's families amongst communities and neighbourhoods and flourish as it draws people into an eternally, wonderfully, beautifully transforming relationship with you. And so Jesus, I just want to thank you for the way that you have moved in the life of this church already. And we just want to pray for more, Lord. We want to pray for more. Would you continue to draw people into relationship with you? Thank you. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.